Let's go back to high school. Uh, growing up in Yonkers, what did it mean to you when the locks started blowing up? Oh, it was everything, you know? I still remember where I was standing the first time I heard all about the Benjamins. My man was playing it on his boombox in front of the corner store across the street from the building where I grew up. And I was just like, wow, you know, to hear the Biggie verse come on and for a couple of kids from Yonkers to be rapping alongside the greatest of all time. Like, it was just an amazing feeling. Eske, whose work on Now Right would send an earthquake through the world of pop culture, came from Southwest Yonkers, Riverdale Avenue and St. Andrew's Place, a location that would become famous thanks to the header at the very top of his website. Sometimes considered New York City's sixth borough, Yonkers is just 20 minutes north of Manhattan, but throughout most of the 90s, it was overlooked when it came to hip-hop. And similar to Jersey Joe Budden, Eske knew what it was like to be an outsider looking in. There was a point in my life when I was kind of ashamed of like being from Yonkers when I would, you know, my parents met in Brooklyn and then moved to Yonkers and I would always yell at them like, why would you ever move out of Brooklyn? <laughs> like, can we move back to Brooklyn? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> being older now, though, I understand like, you know, that's the whole point is to like leave the hood. You know what I'm saying? Like bring your kids and your family to a better place. I had a baby a year or two after I got out of high school. You know, I got kicked out of two schools. And, you know, I ended up graduating, but my life was kind of all over the place. I was getting in trouble on the street. So I knew, like, there were better things out there for me, but I really didn't have an idea of, like, where my life was headed. I got a job working as a mailroom clerk, and then I kind of moved up in that company and got a job in IT. And, you know, I got that job. I had little to no experience with computers um, other than messing around on my home PC with AOL. But, you know, they had faith in me. I guess they saw, like, this is a smart kid. He can learn. And they gave me a very entry-level position answering phones. And from there, I made it my mission to learn everything I possibly could about computers and the Internet. Conversations about rap, rumors, and culture would not be found around his workplace water cooler, but Eske always knew that he could log into the online forums to get his fix. Places like the SOHH message boards were where Eske began as a lurker before gathering the courage to chime in. And that's where he found his people. It was a whole new world that opened up for me. So I was working a tech job, and I was very much embedded in that world. And a big part of, like, tech is staying abreast of what's new in the industry. So I would read a lot of tech-related blogs, like Boing Boing, and Gadget was probably around back then. Gawker had just launched. Sites like that were kind of, like, making me familiar with the format of blogging and how effective it could be to like highlight certain things or to like recontextualize mainstream news and add in your opinion or your analysis on something. And then I discovered that there was a very, very small community of rap fans that were blogging. I have to give credit to Jay Smooth. It was one of the most consistent and enlightening of the early rap blogs that I came across and it definitely had a huge influence on me 
at that time, the print rap publications were still at the highest level. You know, it was Double XL, The Source, Vibe. That's what it was. And that, I felt, was never attainable. Like, I'll never work for one of these publications. I'm not a trained writer. I don't have the connections to get a job at a place like that. Through a vast landscape of nothing, SK saw a chance to contribute. He may not have been able to rap like Joe Budden or cut records like DJ Clue or put pen to paper like Elliot Wilson, but there was a way for SK to use his voice. I felt, well, I could do that. You know, that's just a regular guy who I had never previously heard of, has a website and he's writing and people are enjoying it. And if SK was going to say anything, it damn sure had to be authentic and authentically hip hop. This is going to be a dumb question, but were there any other names for your site? No. From from day one, it was not right. And, and where does that come from? That comes from Styles P's cousin, Cousin Styles. That was just something that they would say on their block. They come from Whitney Young Projects. That was just a saying that they would throw around that my boy then brought to my block. It was just kind of like our catchphrase, you know? You know, I knew I wanted to start a blog, and I knew I needed a name, and I was just like, not right. Long before Drake, or Wiz, or Nicki, or Cuddy, or Cole, or Currency, or Mickey Faxer, It's The Real, or thousands of others could only dream of getting SK's cosign, hoping to be included in his thoughts and on his website, an outsider from Yonkers, New York, registered a domain name. It was Memorial Day week of 2005. I had gotten my WordPress set up on a server and I needed a URL. I knew it was going to be not right. I think I went online and I searched for the cheapest registrar. And at the time, it was Yahoo Small Business. So I said, okay. I think I spent like $10 to register it. And that was it. In 2005, white t-shirts were long, cell phones were mostly used to make phone calls, and Joe Budden and SK sat at jobs that were far from satisfying. They, and so many others, found familiarity and hope in small hubs around the internet. On top of a bubbling scene in downtown Manhattan, this would spark the kindling that would send hip-hop in an exciting new direction. Where It's The Real. And this is episode two, Top 8, Dead or Alive. The saying goes, opinions are like assholes, everybody's got one. Well, Byron Crawford was a huge fucking opinion. Byron was a writer, not like a went-to-journalism-school kind of writer, and not the type of writer who interned and climbed the ladder at major media outlets in New York City or Los Angeles. No, he owned a website. ByronCrawford.com, and it was there that he'd present his own agenda on his own time from his own couch. He had a business degree, and his most consistent gig was an on-and-off job at a St. Louis Kmart. He made it his priority to blog almost every day, talking shit about everything from the real world to America's politics. His biggest moment for a time was breaking a wild story about the barbecue restaurant he worked at using human urine to give their meat a certain citrusy taste. It was a lie, but so what? Byron thought it was funny and and never imagined anyone would read it. He also never considered that it'd get him fired. Byron reviewed rap albums, mostly to hate on them. 
Cameron was worthless. Fat Joe sucked. Jews were bad. Women were sluts. And regular headlines included Kanye West is a girl. Kanye West is gay. Or let's hunt and kill Kanye West's mother. Vanessa Satin was then the deputy editor at XXL magazine. I think sometimes what bloggers were able to get away with is talk about rap and be rap nerds and talk about it, create conversations. But a lot of times they got away with not having to interact with the rappers. Whether because he lived in a quiet St. Louis suburb or because the rap blogosphere was so tiny, Byron, also known as Bowl, which he claimed meant the gulliest one in Swahili, operated with a unique recklessness that he dressed up as cultural commentary. Legendary rapper Bun B. So the idea of the critic is nothing new, right? But then there's the idea of the critic for critic's sake kind of thing. Like saying something bad about an artist, not because that's genuinely how you feel about said artist, but that because you know you'll get a rise out of said artist. Bull first got on Bun's radar when he began to harass Pimp C, Bun's partner in the group UGK, who'd been sentenced to jail. And I read a couple of stories and I was like, oh, this dude is, why are you even talking about us? Not only do you not listen to us, you don't even listen to anything similar to us, right? It's not like you prefer UGK over A-Ball or 3-6 Mafia or whatever. You don't even really fuck with this whole, like, Southern rap genre. Why are you even having a conversation about us in the first place? That's why I felt like the need to address it. It was very odd. Like, who the fuck are you? Bull's targets walked a fine line. Throw words right back, thus giving credit to a minor bully, or ignore the bullshit, letting it continue. Of all people... Don West, Kanye's mother, responded to one of Bull's many taunts with a thoughtful comment on his page. She said, quote, How painful it must be to be filled with so much hate. Here's hoping that this hater is not as miserable as his words seem to indicate, and that his mother is as proud of him as I am of Kanye. But there was a looming reality that there could be bigger consequences than just comments. Bull's own mother said she was worried someone might show up at her front door. If anything, I wanted to physically, like, beat him up personally. You know, but dudes got very offended by it and wanted to take it a lot further. And I'm like, this dude is not, like, a real, like, street dude. He's just a sucker, like, really trying to get some attention. You know what I'm saying? Talking crazy. I'm like, look, if I want to do something to him, I go to St. Louis and slap the shit out of him. But, yeah, and, you know, people were really ready to, to go there with him. Bun came from a world where if you said something slick, you could get touched. There were documented cases of Bun's peers making trips up to New York City magazine offices to knock out editors over poor reviews. But this was different. You know, it wasn't wasn't nearly that serious. Because the reality is, it's like, who even knows who this dude is? It's, it's not like anything he's saying is really threatening our reputation. It's not like our fan base is like, well, Byron's got a point or anything like that. And I'm glad that I didn't play into it because... I've seen other people play into it, and it didn't play out well for them either. And was Pimp C aware of who Bull was? I'm almost certain that Pimp C died not knowing anything about this person at all, and that this person even existed. A loyal audience emerged in Bull's comment section that surprisingly included thought leaders, gifted conversationalists, and hip-hop obsessives. Byron was a very loud voice to a very small group of people. Sean Fennessy was an early blogger and reader of Byron's. At the time, I didn't know if Byron Crawford was his real name. I didn't know if he was a real person. I, did, I didn't know anything. I didn't know if it was a stunt. 
I didn't know if it was like the ego trip dudes were like, we're going to blow stuff up again and, you know, re-satirize like rap and rap writing. Um, you could have told me anything. I wasn't thinking about like, wow, this is so unusual that a, a guy from Missouri with no public reputation, not a byline to his name, is out here taking shots. I was like, this is just another blog. Like, we're all in this bubble of blogs and... Hopefully we're all reading each other, but hopefully not too many more people are reading us because a lot of this stuff is pretty flagrant. Commenters who would never connect in real life, not through work, not at parties, not at the grocery store, were suddenly meeting one another, starting friendships, laughing loudly at the same things. One of those commenters was a Jacksonville woman newly out of Job Corps who hate-watched reality TV. She went by the name Freshalina and started a website called Crunk and Disorderly. I was trying to, to, to get a job doing anything. So I used to work at a, um, a bank. I was a teller. And that was like a temp job. So once that was up, like, while I was still, like, job searching is when I started focusing more on blogging. But, well, I wasn't really calling it blogging during that time. I just called it having a website and talking about being Bobby Brown and America's Next Top Model. Because I started my blog for my best friend who sucks. Dallas Penn was an equally street smart and book smart sneakerhead from Queens. He boosted polo in the 80s and wore 3D glasses in the 2000s and blogged from the future at DallasPenn.com. It wasn't music driven that made me want to create a weblog or open a weblog. It was really to put cultural opinion out on everything, on anything and everything. I was populating the site with things I had written all throughout 2005 because uh, when Hurricane Katrina cracked off and I was watching the news and they were calling people uh, looters, that's when I opened up the site because I was just like, yo, that's bullshit. People are flexing because people are, are here taking guard. People are so poor and so downtrodden that they're even taking garbage and people are upset about that. I'm like, man, we're a fucking garbage place. So that's when I opened up the site. That's I literally turned the site on August 29, 2005. Jay Smooth was an erudite DJ and the original hip-hop blogger from Uptown Manhattan. Sean Fennessy, a blue-eyed underground rap fan and journalist from Long Island. Combat Jack, a former music industry attorney and family man from Brooklyn with a lot of stories to get off his chest. Bull's thirst for blood was the connective tissue. I always say it's like Byron doesn't get enough credit. Like, I feel like I met so many, well, virtually met so many people um, and connected with people through his comment section. I feel like that's how, you know, he put me on. Like, he was the first person to ever link to my blog. Fresh from Crunk and Shorley was the one who was like, yo, I fuck with you heavy. Yo, I go to your shit every day because you make me laugh. And I'm like, no, I go to your shit every day because you make me laugh. And she was like, no, you make me. And I was like, no, you make me. No, you make so me. And I was just like, yo, if this person who I admire, I enjoy, never met, but but vibe with such a, a, a powerful frequency with fucks with me, shit, I better get on my day. I better get after it. If Bowl's voice, a loud and divisive one from the suburbs of St. Louis, could make noise around the world, then maybe Fresh or Combat Jack or even Dallas could too. In college, um, I changed my major. I went from architecture to English, and I was telling my dad, I'm, I'm going to be a, a writer. My dad was like, listen, 
there are three jobs you're gonna do that be prepared not to get paid for because people would do that shit for free. One of those jobs is astronaut, the other one is circus clown, and the third one is a writer. So I was like, oh shit, okay, well I'm gonna be poor. Adley E. Stevenson High School in the Bronx was named after the politician who served as governor of Illinois, was on the committee that created the United Nations, and twice was the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. The New York Times noted that the hallowed halls that bore Stevenson's good name were bursting at the seams with resources. A renowned gospel choir, an auto shop, a championship basketball team, a 65-piece marching band, and a 30-teacher English department. It offered a dozen AP classes to students, but it was also shamefully overcrowded, widely considered the most dangerous school in New York City, and only graduated 30% of the kids who walked through their doors. Mickey Fax, who was once suspended from Stevenson for inciting a riot during a rap battle, back when he was known as Renegade, was one of the lucky ones to make it out. His mother saw that as a blessing, and one not to be wasted on artistic ambition. Her dream was for him to be the first man in their family to go to college. This is Mickey. The language that we know of today where you can kind of become something just from sharing your life via social media, that did not exist back then. That chain of command was go to high school, graduate, go to college, graduate, intern, or be lucky enough to get a position somewhere and work your way up the corporate ladder. There was no such thing as establishing yourself as a musician or a musical artist that just didn't exist or creating your own lane for what it is that you wanted. That just did not exist. He would attend NYU and work as a paralegal, or at least that's what he told his mom. But his passion for wordplay and the rush of impressing a crowd couldn't be put aside. Mickey found his way to rap ciphers in the streets, honing his craft and using his voice in ways he couldn't in a classroom. Not only was it his calling, it was in his blood. My father was very supportive of me in the beginning because he was a rapper in 1981, 1982, 1983. So he was more receptive of me being an MC. My mother was not with it. She wanted me to go to college and become something, anything, you know? That's where the security lies. And when Mickey's mom found out she was paying tuition money for him not to go to class? I mean, my mom kicked me out. I mean, because I was, you know, I was leveraging me going to school to stay at home. Mickey was suddenly on his own. He didn't fit in with the traditional up-and-comers that he battled uptown, nor could he convince his own family that his path toward a career in music was equivalent to an internship. Prove your worth now and make money later. He faced a life without a home or an income or an alumni group. Mickey doubled down, and for the next two years, he couch surfed, crashed on friends' floors, and dated girls long enough to have a steady bed to sleep in. And each night, he'd hop turnstiles to make his way downtown, immersing himself in a place where lots of -of out-of-towners would mob through, a bubbling new scene on the Lower East Side. He was embraced by people who related to Terror Squad, but also dug French electronic music and watched anime. This was not Mickey's father's hip-hop. I like your super 
a lot of times people thought I was from like Chicago or people thought I was from LA. You didn't ever think I was from New York until like we just started saying, hey, hey, I'm from the Bronx. Harlem rapper Smoke Dizza recognized Mickey by his fitted shirts, skinny jeans, and of course, super shoes. That was Mickey's thing. Like Mickey popped off supers, like the whole quote unquote hipster look, respectfully. Pittsburgh rapper Wiz Khalifa. I seen him, I seen how he dressed, I seen how he performed, I seen his energy, how he commanded himself. I'm like, this is a whole totally different type of New York right here. Like, you know what I mean? He's taking it to the next level. Mickey had found his people downtown. A community of young kids just trying to make it in America who'd marked their turf south of Houston Street. Tiana Taylor was 15. Eastside Stevie wasn't even ASAP Yams yet. Designers, artists, and skaters like Heron Preston, the Cool Kids, and Harold Hunter would gather outside Supreme, Dave's Quality Meat, and A-Life. Monday nights, they'd party at the nightclub Sway before rolling into work their menial jobs. Like Scott, who folded clothes at Bape. At night, he became Kid Cudi. And everyone knew the girl behind the counter at Stussy, an aspiring model and video director named Vashti. It just felt like these are all your friends. These are all the people you know or have heard of. And we're all in the same building. It felt very cool to be a part of. And I think that's just because it's having a home of your own. You know, it's like growing up seeing like TV shows like Save by the Bell. Like they go to the max and it's like all their friends are there. Or, you know, the Peach Pit on 90210. That just was a very cool thing to have. Everyone, anyone who was anyone at that time in that scene was there. All the downtown characters. Ambition, plus a 24-hour lifestyle, plus a little money, made for some wildly creative partnerships. In a group of doers and makers, someone who owned a digital camera was all of a sudden a music video director. These kids produced magazines together. They designed clothing together. They put on live performances together. Kid Cudi's creative partner and manager at the time, Plain Pat. Cudi would just be always on the same bills, like... Every show, it was like, Mickey Fox, Chip Cuddy, and then like, maybe like one or two other people like that they wrote to him. So it was like, we always came across each other. There definitely was a little bit of a uh, girl competition because, you know, just being so close in geography, like we were, at, we were at everything together. Back up town, if Mickey found himself in a cipher, the regulars looked at him as just another guy who could rhyme. People were just like, oh, that smoked is his homie. But when Dizza tagged along one night to a venue known as the Knitting Factory, it was like stepping foot into an alternate reality where Mickey Fax was the center of attention. When Cuddy pulled them on stage and like they were drinking Coronas, I was just like confused and yet blown away that my friend was in this crowd because I'm fucking from 119th Street between Manhattan and Morningside. My culture at the time was way different than you know, what was going on on the internet. That was just a whole nother world for me. Dizza had to double-check the strain of weed he was puffing. When he went back home, it'd take a whole lot of convincing for his friends in 5XL t-shirts to believe Mickey, Cuddy, and Wale were the popular kids. Stephen Othello was Mickey's creative partner. I'm from the hood. Like, I, I feel like we all share the same stories. So I'm like, how could I be different because of the way I dress? It was like in me, not like what I'm wearing. You know, at the end of the day, that connected me to like a, a Jay-Z or a Nas. Like Nas is my favorite rapper, right? It wasn't about the way he dressed that made me appreciate him. It was just stories that made me connect. But yeah, I mean, it did feel different because the grind was different. You know, they grinded way different from how we grinded. Like we were computer grinding really hard. 
and they were like in the streets, you know, doing promo or like uh, on Hot 97. Like I felt like we couldn't even make it to Hot 97. It was a time where I didn't even want to, to be honest. I liked the way we were doing what we were doing because I felt like it was the newest way of doing it. The tried and true way of doing it was hand to hand, local. Smoke Dizza understood the links he was building because he could see these people in front of him. For a New York artist as myself that like prides himself in lyrics, you know, we wanted to get next to the Funk Flexes. That's the creme de la creme of a DJ, especially, you know, if Flex co-signed you and Flex played you at 7 p.m., you knew you was doing something. So waiting outside of the radio station to bump into a case lay or bump into a Funk Flex or Clue or whoever at the time that was, you know, standing next to the gate, that was the only way you did it. Mickey, who got by making money as a model for his friend's clothing labels, was willing to sacrifice because he just couldn't find it within himself to do what everyone else was doing when it came to music. I love all of those DJs down at Hot 97 and Power 105, but honestly, I never wanted to be in front of Hot 97 or being down in front of Def Jam waiting for A&R to come out, come in. I never saw the value in that. And, you know, there are guys that I discovered like that, but, you know, a lot of times those guys stay local. I saw that the Internet was a way to communicate with people from all over the country and all over the world. What Mickey saw was a website called MySpace. Founded in 2003, MySpace had become by far the most popular social networking site. You could customize your page with original backgrounds and embed your favorite song of the moment. You could express yourself as an individual in ways never thought possible. Every user's page even featured a section dedicated to their top eight, showing the world who ranked as your most important connections. This is DJ A-Track. A lot of us weren't necessarily thinking about that visual presentation as much until it became so easy to tie together on a platform like MySpace. So I would say the aesthetics of it, like the page design, but then, you know, obviously the top eight, very important. Probably the most important. You know, because someone lands on the, on your page and they're like, okay, cool, what's this person about? Well, they're getting some sort of aesthetic cue from the type of design you have. Then they look at your top eight and they're like, oh, okay, it's some sort of connection to this or that. MySpace's top eight changed the definition of friend. No longer was that someone who'd pick you up from the airport. Now they were connections. All it took to be a friend was clicking a button to accept. You weren't confined to who you grew up with or the circumstances you found yourself in. You wanted Paris Hilton in your life? Done. Anyone who stumbled on your page could see you as you dreamed you'd be. You could dress cool. You could brand yourself as a model, a DJ, a musician, or most likely all three. You could be a triple threat. The walls between celebrities and the less known were breaking down. It no longer took a magazine photo shoot to make you a tastemaker. The world had shrunk to 800 pixels. Rapper and producer Chuck English of The Cool Kids. They were sharing what they were wearing and what they were doing with the rest of the world through MySpace. Prior to that, you were, you, know, you could be a kid from Chicago or you'd be a kid from somewhere else. You go to New York and you like, holy shit, this shit is different. They were, you know, North Face parkas. Everybody got a uh, backpack on. Everybody laced their shoes this way. Their cuffs is this way. Like all of the details that made like living in New York different than living in Chicago. You're wearing like a Gucci bucket hat and like the hottest Supreme collab sneakers, then it like helps you to stand out even more. And at that time, I think that brands and 
companies didn't know how to get in touch with cool, authentic people. And they would probably go to MySpace and use them for vision boards and mood boards and create new season looks based off of what some kid in the Lower East Side was wearing. Mickey and his creative partners, Stephen Othello and St. Louis, together under their marketing collective GFC, envisioned a non-traditional way forward. They had to finesse. They took a bunch of songs by Pharrell's band, N.E.R.D., cut them up to create instrumentals that Mickey would rap over, posted to MySpace, and forwarded the songs to anyone and everyone, acting like Mickey was P's new signee. We're in a building. Y'all want to search for me? I'm here, man. Look. I'm a madman, raining over the badlands, blowing up like an Afghan up in the black van in front of a landmark. So when you hear that blam, better have a gun big enough to fit in shack hands. Stop, baby, you're really not crazy. Peep this, I'm a genius that can outfox Jamie. In this game of wits, I'm going to change the script. Put you on freeze frame when I change the clip. It was crazy because what we did is we reached out on, I guess, like MySpace DM. We were saying the messages to everyone, like every single, like, sick celebrity at the time, I guess, or social tastemaker at the time. You send a message to them like, yo, check this out. New artists that work with Pharrell, new artists that work with NERD. Just gassing it because that's all we had. We didn't have any other way of promotion. We knew that it was a little too forward from Hot 97 and shit like that. And we, we didn't really have another way of like pushing it. And I remember us reaching out to uh, Shay from NERD and him hitting us back and saying it was dope. That was like God saying that, yo, like, like I approve of how you live in your life. A battery in your back can get you from Monday to Tuesday, and Faith might get you from Tuesday to Thursday, but neither one was paying any bills when the first of the month rolled around. It was me, Mickey, and Saint. We had no idea what we were doing, but we knew that we couldn't push things without a budget, right? So we didn't have a budget to like create CDs or do street promotion. So all we had was the internet. The first person to really support Mickey were the cool kids, and when they did it, you know, they were from Chicago. Like, Mickey and, and Chuck, they met on MySpace and were sending beats back and forth and just being on some cool shit. So it was like, oh, we found that community. So I didn't have to look towards, like, uh, like a Jay-Z to try to get on. Our first office was the Starbucks on 35th Street and 7th. Like, we were sitting there for eight hours and do work. Like, we were a business. And the entire business plan? Get the attention of the gatekeepers and the talent would speak for itself. Not a novel idea by any stretch of the imagination. What was different, though, assigning all their energies to an emerging group of curators, ones with a smaller audience and possibly a bigger payoff. The blogs. Even if the blogs weren't exactly welcoming. What, what did you put in your email to try to get SK's attention? Uh, yo, SK, uh, Snicky Facts. Um, I got this record. I just did, you know, check it out. Really dope. Look out for it. You know, we, we tried everything and he, he just kind of, he never responded. You know, we were early on trying to get him, but he was not, he was not listening. Months over months over months and not even a response back. Didn't know if the emails were ever opened or the songs ever listened to. Didn't know if it was his name that was the problem or if the subject line was misspelled or, or maybe SK just had a bad day. All he knew was that as badly as he wanted to be heard, the person on the other side of the email had to be open to listening. Mickey just had to keep trying, knowing that when an email of his finally hit, the message would be worth it. But it wouldn't be any boasts or slick lines that got him attention. 
It was the honesty and pain he put into music after hearing about the killing of a 23-year-old black man by police on November 25th, 2006. I had did a song when Sean Bell got murdered in Queens and he took 50 shots. I did a song called I'm Sean. One cop, two cop, three cop, four, 48, 49, 50 shots more. White world, black man. This is my song, my story, my life, my death. I'm Sean. So it seems it ain't a dream. My night turned fatal. The aftermath of the scene turned me into an angel. And the plot thickens. I'm sick and it wasn't the robber that killed me. The cops did it, man. We ain't even do nothing. Correction on that. We ain't even shoot nothing. They could have asked some questions. Those cops were bad detectives just following some bad directives. My spirit Mickey laid out the details of what should have been an evening of fun and freedom that ended in death after cops fired 50 rounds at an unarmed Sean, killing him the morning before his wedding day. It was on every newspaper's front page, but that didn't mean the story was being told correctly. So Mickey put pen to paper. He didn't write this song to sell out stadiums, nor to earn a huge deposit. It was a chance to speak up, to shine a light on reckless men with badges in neighborhoods like his. And SK felt that. His platform, not any traditional media outlet, would be the place for that message. And when I did that record, that was the first time I was featured on Now Right. And that was kind of like the big thing for us. Because it was like, all right, we finally made it. Wow, we're on Now Right. Mickey found a whole new audience thanks to the eyes and ears on Now Right. He'd get featured on songs left and right, pop up in major magazines, and take a flight to Japan where headline shows awaited. Mickey Fax, that boy from the Bronx, had never performed outside of New York City. To the shock of an industry that was used to artists falling in line, Mickey had leapfrogged his peers seemingly overnight. I felt like the gatekeepers were going to be SK and Shink and Mecca and all hip-hop, Smash, you know. But I just thought it was going to be them. And it was. I bet right. For Mickey and his friends hanging out downtown, every decision, every look, and every email returned could feel earth-shaking. But up on the executive floors of Midtown high-rises, the corner offices weren't paying any mind. Jay Smooth. You see all the time people are slow to recognize trends that are about to make them go extinct. Like, you know, Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix, mad cheap, and they were like, whatever. It was unheard of for A&Rs at record companies to scout talent online. Jive Records A&R Jeff Sledge, who worked with artists like UGK, Shaquille O'Neal, and A Tribe Called Quest. It was actually looked at as, you're a weirdo. What is that weirdo shit you're talking about? Like, it's not the way we do things. And, you know, it just, it was like very sub, I'll put three subs on it, sub, sub, subculture of artists. And they weren't really being taken seriously by the majors at all. Mickey Facts. Like, the guys who were, who were blowing up, we weren't rapping about typical stuff that was popular in New York City at the time. You know, we kind of were rapping about our lives. Whereas there was a lot of street music that was coming out from Nano, Papoose, Joel Ortiz. You know, those were the more popular New York City underground artists. Uh, whereas we kind of took over the internet. Like the internet was a, a very big thing and it was hipster rap. We were dubbed hipster rap. And hipster rap wasn't just quote unquote what we were rapping about, it was what we were wearing too. On the internet, it was a completely different 
style of hip hop that we were doing that people gravitated towards. Plain Pat. Those early days that Jim, me and Hot Hotspur, I might have been, you know, one of the only people in the hip hop side that were tapped in to the internet at all. You know, it was a nerdy thing. It was like, you know, I mean, obviously it was, it was crossing over, but in terms of like business, I don't know if people got it at that point. So I'm trying to think like, in those early years. It wasn't part of the marketing plan yet, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Hoff was a part of Def Jam's tiny internet team. His title? I believe it was New Media Coordinator. It's so funny, New Media, like they couldn't call it digital. You know, they, right. they, had, they had no grasp of what it was. It was just New Media. Well, New Media got no respect back in the days. <laughs> I still laugh um, how some used to call us IT as well. That was the most crushing blow. <laughs> When you'd be referred to as the guy from IT. Labels were mailing out 8x10 glossy bios with CD singles. Websites were scoffed at. The word internet sounded to them like piracy. That went across the board, though. Few realized it, but every industry was about to face a reckoning. The modem was calling from inside the house. Everyone thought that, like, the record industry was bad. But I think in the media, there was something similar going on where, like, we knew that everyone was late and slow and that there was, like, something new happening. Brendan Frederick, also known as B-Fred, was editor-in-chief at Mass Appeal in 2005 and was offered a job at XXL to establish and run their website. At the time, taking a quote-unquote internet job at a magazine was kind of looked down upon by a lot of people. It was kind of perceived as, like, you're the online editor, you're like the BT. And, you know, people, some people even advised me against taking that job because they said you're going to be pigeonholed as the digital or not, not even people said digital they said you're going to be pigeonholed as the internet guy you're not going to be able to get the real magazine jobs right andreas hale was writing for hiphopdx.com print was still king so double xl was still running things the source was still running things but we started seeing things transition because publicists started taking the internet seriously and started presenting us opportunities to talk and then you didn't have to wait for a print cycle to push that that stuff out and it became the same way with music because no longer it started getting pulled out of the DJ's hands where they were no longer the gatekeepers and tastemakers that they once were. It started becoming the websites who would tell you what to like and then give you access to that music. So by the time 2004, 2005 hit, that's when SOHH, All Hip Hop, DX, when I was there at the time, were really, really running things because it was a, a different element and we were pulling everything away from print. And print was still trying to hang on. Then you saw print writers started to come over to the internet. So that's where it all happened. Yeah, I, I think that's really where it started to peak. And then the blog era soon followed after that. Brian B. Miller, co-host of the Rap Radar podcast, started as a writer for XXL Magazine. I didn't see the storm that was coming. You know, I just thought that, okay, the web was a cool ancillary kind of product to the print component of what we were doing. I just felt like, okay... The print is the alpha and omega of this journalism media thing. And the web thing, it's cute. It's cool. You know, it's, it's there. But I don't think it's ever going to latch on. That's how I felt personally. I mean, I enjoyed it. But again, I didn't have that foresight to think, okay, this is where it's going to go. To me, at the time, and no disrespect to like two dope boys or many, I didn't think of them as a threat or anything like that that was going to, you know, change, change the game. Yeah, the establishment was going to establishment. But not without reason. The internet hadn't yet proven that it wasn't all bad. 
Napster did allow copyrighted catalog music to float from person to person to person on an unprecedented level. Losing profit meant losing jobs, thousands of them, and no artist, whether the veteran Nelly or rookie Soldier Boy, could alone stem the tide. Seeing little other choice, they closed ranks and redefined how the music business did business, starting with mixtape DJs, who for a decade prior understood how essential they were for the food chain, promoting new artists on a street level, lending regional credibility and local authenticity. This is Splash, the mostly silent partner for New York mixtape powerhouses DJ Envy and DJ Clue. It's free promotion, but not free promotion because we got paid. We didn't get paid from labels, but we got paid for dishing out mixtapes with music that the labels were giving out. So while I'm not going to say it's smart people, but the smart people from the labels who were promotion knew and respected the concept of DJs, not necessarily in the clubs, but mixtapes, because they reached a certain market that other people in labels or higher execs could not reach. So they knew the importance of mixtapes. They knew the importance of mixtapes. They also respected the shout out from the DJs to get their name bigger. Also, in case another executive heard it, they know that they did their job in getting the record out and making these songs bigger. But we kind of did a lot of the dirty work for them that they couldn't do themselves or they were too lazy to do. Before, the consequences of leaking a record may have ended with you being called into an executive's office to be threatened or getting a gun waved in your face by an artist. But now, the long shadow of the RIAA was sneaking up on music men like Splash. To me, it didn't have a face to it. I knew that they could come get us. I knew it was about copyright infringement and all that stuff, but it did not have a face to it. So seeing record label execs, I'm not paying attention when I go up there. I'm not looking at someone from the uh, piracy, anti-piracy department or whatever it is. I'm going up there straight to get music from, if I see an artist up there, I'm explaining who I am, explaining who Envy is, if they don't know who it is, on that record, this and that, like that was my thing. Even me and Irv, when Murder Inc. was in the Def Jam building, me and him became cool and I was in his office a lot because I was in the Def Jam building a lot, we became cool, but I was not really thinking about RIAA. The RIAA truthfully did not hit my mind until later on as we get there. I see the direction that we're going. That direction was up. The heat was up. The time was up. For African wholesalers on New York City's Canal Street all the way to Minneapolis, home to a young DJ Ski. Where I gravitated towards was online. Because nobody had really done anything online, especially in that field, I made myself look like the, the biggest DJ in the world to the point where I literally got sued and, and shut down by the RIAA when I was like 16, 17 years old. We got a letter and it was funny because my domain was registered to my dad's name because I had to use his credit card because I wasn't 18 to buy a domain. So he got the letter that like threatening the world like you owe 20 billion dollars and because you know how like it's like however much per offense and the way that i made it look online i made it look like i was like this big dj <laughs> and then the web nobody knew anything back then so they thought i was some like kingpin when in reality it was like a high school kid so luckily a lawyer that worked at the company he was at just helped us out and sent them a letter like no this is a high school project by a kid it's nothing they maybe <laughs> this is this is what you're gonna love they made me promise sign a letter to promise to never do another mixtape <laughs> If there was anyone untouchable in 2005-2006, it was the undisputed king of the mixtapes, DJ Drama. Born and raised in Philadelphia, but having come of age at Clark Atlanta University, Drama's collaborations with T.I., Jeezy, Lil Wayne, and dozens more helped cement the South's lead in the rap game. Drama's signature series, Gangsta Grills, 
featured rappers showing off their skills over the country's hottest instrumentals. Drama narrated throughout the project with the excitement of a boxing promoter and had a reach unlike any other. You could find physical copies of these street albums in every major city. And if artists or managers weren't reaching out to coordinate a project with Drama, then record labels were. This is Mr. Thanksgiving, DJ Drama. Gangsta Grills was the hottest shit in the streets. It was the streets. It was the greatest tool from that perspective that would garnish their artists the visibility that they wanted. You know, what magazine covers do we need? Okay, we need Double XL, we need Source. Okay, what television shows do we need? Okay, we need MTV and 106 and Park. Okay, what, what do we need in the streets when it comes to, you know, getting people to talk about it? Okay, we need DJ Drama Gangsta Grills. Shout to the Super Friends, Michael Fahrenheit, Shout Kim, Legion of Doom, Kool Aid, what's good? After Young Jeezy's Trap or Die mixtape dropped in January of 05 and corporations started calling, DJ Drama transitioned from a person to a brand to a movement. It was all that. I mean, obviously, you know, my bank account started increasing and, you know, went from a fucking Mitsubishi Montero to a Mercedes Benz CL. 55 and i remember going to mix show power summit and buster roms and other various big names just kind of coming up to me and saluting me and telling me you know they've been seeing what i've been doing in the streets and then it was you know me being on tour and going from city to city and hearing my drops play out of everybody's cars you know that drove by drama's phone was ringing off the hook pharrell called to do a gangster grills eminem called to give drama his own serious satellite radio show on m's shade 45 channel Atlantic Records called to offer him a deal for his debut album. And then on the afternoon of January 16th, 2007, Drama's line would not stop buzzing. I had gotten a phone call from someone I knew that their relative worked in law enforcement and they heard that they were coming over to Walker Street to raid the studio. I thought it was a mistake. I thought they actually were coming to the studio next door, so I didn't take it that seriously, but I told everybody, hey, I just got a phone call. And, um... You know, some people took heed and, you know, the rest of us were like, okay, well, let's just kind of get prepared. So I went outside to move my car. And the next thing you know, I saw these Tahoes pull up right on me. You know, cops in full gear jumped out with M16s drawn, told me to get on the ground. And I did just that. As drama laid down in the street, his mind raced, trying to figure out who the hell these agents were really looking for. I remember, you know, them asking for my ID, which was in my back pocket. And then they went on the radio and then was like, we got one of the perps. And I was like, what the fuck? And they stood me up. They said, Tyree Simmons, you're under the RICO law. You've been arrested for bootlegging and racketeering. Handcuffs. Perp walk. Mugshot. Headlines. In one dizzying afternoon, DJ Drama's entire world was turned upside down by Georgia state government in coordination with the RIAA. Drum, what'd you know about the RIAA before 2007? That day, you were the ones who uh, sent plaques to people. <laughs> and, that, and that they were, you know, they were, they were a company that looked out for the rights of artists. Drama wasn't a criminal. He was an artist who the organization was supposed to protect. But the new message was as loud and clear as a Gangsta Grills ad-lib. Hot 97 personality and executive, Ebro Darden. What that really was, was the labels were going through their own shit, and executives was like, yo, we need to get control of this shit, 
and the fucking labels sold out the, their promotional outlet because that's what they were doing. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. And they didn't want to, you know, yeah, come on, man. Y'all know what it is, man. Award-winning New York mixtape DJ, Sycamore. When they shut that down, man, I was just like, it was like the world stopped. Like, where were you when you heard about that? That's how it felt in the mixtape game. Co-founder of the mixtape conglomerate Evil Empire, Ev Boogie. Oh, man. Uh, I was probably in New York with an apartment stack full of boxes of CDs and thinking to myself, oh, shit, where am I going to put these things? Not that I was ever, ever, Evil Empire ever reached the fame and accolades that drama did, but it certainly was an incident that really resonated and shook through the whole mixtape community. I probably was being a little bit selfish and thinking like not about drama and Don and like how that affect them personally, but more like, yo, how is this going to fuck my paper up? Steve Carlos. That was an eye opener. And it told us that, men, these record companies and these piracy agencies aren't really playing. And, and But they got the wrong thing because, these, you know, you're torn on it because, you know, culturally and, and morally, how much good it's doing for artists and how many people it's feeding. But on the flip side, the people that are actually manufacturing this are destroying their business. All the mixtape sites at the time kind of shut down and most of the DJs that were big mixtape DJs all kind of put their other hustles or occupations in front of making mixtapes. And I watched the, the rise of live mixtapes and that piff and of artists of a whole new generation come where they didn't even use DJs. You know, we were all a little, a little shook after that raid. And it felt like it was like the beginning of the end, you know, for the traditional mixtape route. In 2007, chaos reigned in the record business. Up was down, and down was up. Sales were plummeting, while MP3 players were everywhere. Friends turned their backs. Def Jam, once home to Public Enemy and DMX, was about to go all in on Justin Bieber. It's easy to have forgotten Joe Budden. Hell, his own label had. In the middle of this music industry tornado, Joe Budden sat, cross-legged, on the shelf. His one and only official release had been his 2003 debut album four years earlier. He didn't have a true partnership with Def Jam like Jay-Z. He didn't have the chart numbers like Kanye West. Joe was a cult hero on internet message boards thanks to the heavy recordings that Def Jam continued to turn down. So he gave away a treasure trove of songs directly to his fans called Mood Music 2. Heralded by critics on Box Den and at the New York Times alike, there was little question that Joe's artistic value was at an all-time high. Joe wanted out, but since the label had no incentive to bend his way, things stood at a stalemate. I knew I wanted to be on my own. I didn't want that experience again. I knew I wanted to go the independent route. Who had done that successfully before you? Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. There wasn't anything where you were like, oh, that's a model that I can follow you. No, 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 no one was doing that no one was rushing to be on their own and still continued at the time that wasn't a common thing when skane dalla signed joe budden to def jam in 2002 he knew it was a life-changing moment for joe for joe's mother for joe's son web was like yeah i got something this kid is fucking ill and then we listened and i'm like oh shit whoever the fuck he is he can wrap his ass off make sure you get in contact with him today everyone gets a shot everyone makes their own lane whatever it's like winning the lottery. It's literally, it's not even one in a million, it's one in a billion. 
But after close to five years, Def Jam CEO L.A. Reid recognized that it was time for another life-changing decision. You know, I remember L.A. Reid said something to me because he was like, you know, this kid has so much fucking potential. Like, he's an artist. He's so much of an artist. But you can't get him to, you know, put out music. You know, sometimes he's just, artists are too artsy. You know, sometimes you can be too much of an artist. And he's like, you know, I don't think he's going to put out music anytime soon. So let him go. And that's what L.A. said. Like, he's like, I think he's too much of an artist. Like, meaning like there wasn't the hustle and the business in him. And just like that, with a Grammy nomination and one major label album to his name, Joe Budden was dropped by Def Jam. He was looked at as washed up, over the hill, used goods, all in his mid-twenties. Joe's close friend, Ice. It takes getting fucked in your previous dealings to kind of show you how to move forward, even if you don't necessarily know the steps. So he saw what happened with Def Jam and was like, all right, that ain't happening no more, no matter what. I don't know what's next, but it won't be that. With physical mixtapes no longer a feasible distribution angle, with no major label help, with no proven path forward, Joe observed a new wave that he was about to throw himself into. The blogs. They were everything. They were my street team, my distribution, uh, my testing ground. There was my meet and greet. That was my pop-up. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was everything. The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Benner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlis. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is The Blog Arrow.